Uh, it's great to be with you uh, this morning. I'm Pastor Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors at our campus in Norton, and it's uh, great to be with you this special day for mothers. Uh, but <clears throat> I'd like to be up front with you right away, and that Mother's Day is always an interesting challenge. Um, what do I mean by that? Uh, not only is it, is, is it a much-needed celebration and appreciation for our moms, but for some, it's also a day of heartache and sorrow. It's a difficult day. It's the effects of, of the world that we live in. And so every one of us approaches Mother's Day in a different way this year. Now, some of us have young kids. Some of us, our kids are grown and out of the house. Some, we weren't able to have kids. Some, we've, we've recently lost a child or a mother or grandmother. It hurts. It's tough. And so, as you can see, Mother's Day means a lot of different things and, and evokes a lot of different feelings on this day. Emotions and thoughts, some sad, some thoughtful, some celebratory, and some very, very special. And I just want to say, wherever you're at on this spectrum this morning, we're glad you're here because this is what I do know for sure. Whether you're married or single or whether you long for a child or are parenting a full house, you are part of a family. You are part of a family. But even family can be a, a little bit of a tricky thing because family can be a source of, of pride and joy. It can also leave us broken. Family can make us who we are and family can break our hearts. I think it's interesting, some kids were asked to write letters to God, and some of them had some very interesting insight and advice. Uh, one kid wrote, Dear God, is it true my father won't get in heaven if he uses his bowling words in the house? <laughs> Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel wouldn't have hurt each other so much if they had their own rooms. It worked with me and my brother. <laughs> Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but I prayed for a puppy. <laughs> Dear God, I bet it's hard for you to love all of everyone in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and it's still hard. <laughs> and this might sound familiar. That's family. And that's the, that's the first thing is we all have family, right? We all are part of a family. We all have a family. None of us get to choose our family, though some of us at times wish we could have. I know I was uh, the youngest of three boys, and at that time in my life, I was smaller than them, younger than them, and so they picked on me a lot. That has changed over the years. Now I can take them. <laughs> But I, as this little boy, I was, I was always picked on, and one day, I had had enough. They, they teased me to my limit, and I'm like, I'm going to show them. I'm just going to run away. So I went to the cupboard, and I found a loaf of bread, and I went into the refrigerator, and there was about a half of a half gallon of orange juice in there, and so I grabbed that, and I ran all the way to the backyard pine tree. <laughs> And it was under that pine tree, you know, the, the, the boughs went all the way to the, the ground. And so I thought, nobody's going to see me here. I'm just going to tent right here under this pine tree. 
And I sat there with my loaf of bread and my orange juice for what seemed like hours. It was probably like 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> and I looked at my bread and I looked at my orange juice and I'm like, oh, maybe family's not so bad after all. And so I walked back into the house and I put the stuff away and I told my mom, hey, I just to let you know I ran away. <laughs> She's like, you did? I was like, yes, I ran away. I was upset. And so maybe you've had times like that in your life. We all have a family. One, our experience with family, though, is really diverse. Someone has said that families are like fudge, mostly sweet but sprinkled with some nuts. Uh, every one of us has that, that weird uncle or that goofy cousin. And just like Mother's Day, we all have different experiences with family. Maybe both parents in the home or, or split time between parents or a single parent family. Or maybe both parents were in the home, but there was no love. We come from big families and small families and blended families. We are part of families that live in the same communities. And we're part of families where we're all over the map. Even the terms can mean different things to different people. Talk about fathers, you get all kinds of reactions. Warm, chilling, vacant, loving. And so with all of these different kinds of families and all of these different feelings and definitions that are, that are tossed about concerning families, where do we start? Well, when it comes to the family, God roots his ideal in creation. When it comes to family, God has rooted his ideal design in creation. Last week, we finished a conversation called Long Story Short. We were looking at this 30,000-foot view from Genesis to Revelation, looking at God's story and, and how we're part of that story. Well, consider this week a, a bonus week to that series because the Long Story Short is really about two families. And God's story starts with the first family. His plan and his purpose is rooted in creation. And so right from the very beginning, we see God putting together the family. And we read in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man, and when he saw her, he said, whoa, man, and that's how we got woman. No. <laughs> The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So right from the very outset, God made man, and he saw that he needed help. He needs someone to, to come alongside and support him and, and help him. And God saw that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. It wasn't the ideal. And so God made the woman. And right here we see God's ideal for family begins with marriage. 
one man plus one woman joined together in a covenant that lasts the rest of their lives. You see, in marriage, God takes two and makes them one. It's marriage math. One plus one equals one. And what God makes one shouldn't be undone. And then look at what he told the two now one couple. Again, in Genesis 1, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And so God made them male and female. They were different. And as male and female, who are now joined together as one in marriage, God says, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, have babies. Well, how? Well, that's a different conversation. (laughs) But here we see that God created with a plan and a purpose and a design for his creation. In Genesis 4, we read, Adam made love to his wife Eve. And I just want to stop there because I think this is fascinating. I think it's so interesting because the original word here in in the original Hebrew is yadah which is significant. It has this general meaning of to know. But here it's this very intimate kind of knowledge. In other words, just sexual relationship doesn't mean we're experiencing yada. It's more than that. Yada is dedicating ourselves to another person so we can engage, we engage them with our love and affection. And what's fascinating is that that word is used throughout the first part of the Bible in the Old Testament and talking about our relationship with God, which leads us to understand that when God says, know me, it's not just know about me, but it's know me personally, know me intimately, have this personal and intimate knowledge relationship with God. So here, though, it's a a picture of their committed oneness of physically and spiritually and emotionally. And so Adam made love to his wife. He knew her intimately. He dedicated himself to her with love and affection. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And so we see that God's ideal is one man plus one woman equals one marriage. And in that one marriage, the fruit of their love for each other produces children. And that's family. Right from the beginning, you see, God's ideal was that human beings navigate and enjoy and make sense of life in the context of a family. His ideal was that physical and spiritual and emotional intimacy be experienced and enjoyed inside the covenant security of marriage. His ideal was to produce and protect and provide for the fruit of that love in the context then of family. So what does that look like? Let's unwrap and trace God's heart and his ideal for the family. Here's what it looks like. It looks like husbands loving and leading like Jesus. Several passages here in Ephesians chapter 5 says this. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. You see, God's ideal is that husbands lead just like Jesus leads. It's interesting, though. Jesus led as a servant leader, which means it doesn't mean demanding my rights and leveraging my position to get my way. But it means leveraging my leadership in order to serve my family. Leveraging my leadership in order to serve the ones I love, to serve my wife. The husband is to be the leader who is considerate of and, and seeks understanding of others. Husbands also are to love just like Jesus loves. How did Jesus love? He loved us sacrificially. He gave up his life for us. He gave his life for the church. We're to love just like that. God's ideal is that husbands love and lead like Jesus. And wives helping and supporting like God. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Again, in Ephesians chapter 5, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and the wife must respect her husband. God created the woman to come alongside, to support, to help the man. He needed help, and so God's ideal is that a man's wife help him just as, just as God helps those who need help. Encouraging, building up, admiring him, giving him support while recognizing him as her servant leader and sacrificial lover. It's so countercultural to today. And not only is it countercultural, counter basically, it's impossible on our own. I know when I first got married and I thought, wow, you know, this is good, and I got married, and the first few months I was like, man, I'm really selfish. And that, that selfishness came out in our relationship. And so trying to figure that out and like, wow, this, this new understanding of myself and, and figuring that out. And then we had a baby. <laughs> and, and in raising our son, I'm like, wow, I'm really, really selfish. <laughs> and, uh, and our relationships have a way of bringing that out and, and helping us stare it face in the face. But I believe that... <clears throat> Each one of us, our default is this selfishness, this self-protection and pride. But God calls us to something different. He calls us to something different, to love and to lead like Jesus, to support, to help, to serve like God. And for kids, God's design for the family looks like children honoring and respecting their parents. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on earth. And so there's a sense in which little children honor their parents with their obedience. And as we grow up and we become older children, we honor them with our loyalty and our thankfulness. As children, recognize your parents' role in your life. Respond to their role as the one in authority while you're in their home. And when you leave the home, respect and recognize their influence. And here's the thing. 
whether at home or away from the home, parents always appreciate a thank you. Do you appreciate a thank you as a parent? To hear it from your kids, man, thanks dad for, for this, or thanks mom for providing this. You know, give, that's why we have days like Mother's Day and, and Father's Day, because every once in a while we need a little slap on the head that says, hey, be thankful. <laughs> so show thankfulness to, to your parents and honor them in that way. Finally, in God's design for an ideal family, what does parenting look like? Parents coaching and influencing their children. Ephesians chapter 4, 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. God's heart is that led by the Father, the home, is where spiritual coaching and discipline takes place. That God, in conjunction and in partnership with mom, teach and lead and coach and instruct and encourage and cultivate in their children a heart for God. You see, parents were given the responsibility to raise their children for their good and society's good and our own good, but ultimately for God's praise. And raising our, our kids, our ultimate goal is to reveal God to them. We encourage them to pursue the best things. And so when parents instruct and encourage and discipline their children, they're doing what God does for us. They're imitating God who does the same for us. It's an awesome responsibility. So how do we go about this? One way that the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 6 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In other, other words, with everything you've got. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses, on your gates. In other words, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, mentors, teachers, followers of Jesus. We're to be talking about God and his truth as we live. His truth, who he is, our love and worship of him is to be on our hearts and, and we're to be impressing this truth and this worship of him in our children and, and young people. Not just when we go to church. Not just when we go to church or, or sit down to pray before a meal, but it says as you sit, walk, lie down, get up. In other words, as you go, as you live life, as you're living life, Look for teachable moments to show your kids the truth and, and the wonder of God. Don't, don't be afraid to pause a TV show or, or pause a movie and say, hey, do you, know, do you know what's being said here? And take those teachable moments within your family to talk about issues and talk about things as you go. Because we don't want to teach our children that God is only good for, for church and holidays and meals and crises. No, our priorities and our purpose are driven by God's story. So love the Lord in front of your kids. Love him in front of others. Live to make Jesus make sense. 
And see, when it comes to the family, God has an ideal design rooted in creation. And man, that's, that's awesome. It's great, but my real family doesn't look like God's ideal. If we're honest, my real family, your real family, don't look a whole lot like God's ideal family. I mean, aren't we all from dysfunctional families in one way or another? I love my family. I feel blessed by the family I have. I wouldn't trade them for the world, but I'm from a dysfunctional family. <laughs> I parent a dysfunctional family. I'm a dysfunctional person, and guess what? <laughs> so are you. <laughs> How, like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> How can you say that? I can say it because we don't function the way that God originally intended us to function. And it's because of this powerful and destructive three-letter word called sin. Sin that happened at the fall. Paul said, by one man's sin, death entered the world and death through sin, and it spread to everyone. We're all affected. So what was rooted in creation was ruined at the fall. It affects every person, therefore it affects every family, every family. Can we just dispel the myth of the perfect family? There's no such thing. We're all broken, flawed individuals who live in flawed and broken families. We're all far away from God's ideal family design. And maybe, maybe you've experienced these things or are experiencing now. Maybe your husband isn't leading the way that God designed him to. He's not serving. He's selfish. He's not loving unless he wants something. Your wife isn't supportive. She's critical. She's not helpful. She's nagging. She's not tender but controlling. Your kids aren't respectful but rebellious. They're stubborn and, and out of control, not obedient. They're not coachable. In fact, sometimes it's hard to have serious conversations with them because they're so distracted by their device, their phone, or, or their ears are plugged with earphones. Or maybe they're just disinterested in what you have to say. Maybe your parents aren't coaches, they're just cranky and negative. They're too distracted by work and hobbies to be interested in anyone else. Maybe, maybe they aren't even together anymore. Your extended family, your siblings are weird. <laughs> they're different. They're, they're just plain difficult. Your uncle is loud and obnoxious and, and opinionated. Grandpa no longer has a filter and just says whatever he wants. <laughs> it's like, what's the solution? What's the solution to all of this? You say, well, you know, I just want to have a family like they had in the Bible. Well, that's not helpful. <laughs> Because families in the Bible were messed up. I mean, the whole thing starts out with a wife convincing her husband to do something God told them not to do. And then Adam, instead of saying no or taking the lead, goes along with the whole idea, and bam, sin enters the whole picture. Sin has been hijacking the family ever since. And just in the first book, the first book of Genesis, you see that family is a mess. And what is real is not what God's ideal design is. 
One of Adam and Eve's kids murders his brother over worship preferences. Abraham sleeps with his wife's servant, and she has a kid. Then he sleeps with his wife, and she has a kid. And that family feud has been playing out on the global stage ever since. Keep reading, you see brothers stealing from each other, deceiving their parents. You see husbands and wives picking favorites in their family. You see jealousy and rage and anger, and that's just the first book. You keep reading, you see Israel thrown in the civil war over a family feud. You, you would think, well, okay, we get to the New Testament and Jesus, is, everything's going to be fixed. But even Jesus' family had issues. They lost him. Now, let's face it, what what is real about my family is very rarely God's ideal design for the family. Here's what I love about God's story. God has an ideal design, but he never ignores or forgets what's real. Sin distorts God's ideal, and when it comes to my family, I have to deal with that. Sin will mess my family up. Listen, the further our society and culture get away from God's ideal, the more it will marginalize, minimize, and victimize women and children. It will distort and deconstruct the meaning of marriage. It will distort and destruct the meaning of the family. But the good news is that women and children have always and will always benefit where the gospel and its power are present. So how do I live in this tension of God's ideal and my real? What's the solution? We have to remember that what God rooted in creation got ruined at the curse. He redeems at the cross. And so my point is this. If your family is not the epitome of harmony, take heart. God specializes in redeeming messes. There's hope. God functions in our dysfunction. God redeems at the cross what was rooted in creation and ruined at the curse. When it comes to my family, God redeems what's real at the cross. You see, anyone can say, control your anger, forgive each other, treat each other with respect. But what what is it that gives the power to love, that gives the power to forgive others? It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. It's what he did for us in paying the price for my sin so that I could be forgiven, so that I could have hope, so that I can have life with him forever. It's it's the reality that I've not only been written into God's story, I'm part of his family. You see, this short but powerful phrase in, in Galatians 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is at the heart of the Christian life. Through faith, we are sons and daughters of the living God, our creator. That's an astonishing truth. Paul boldly declares that everyone who says yes to Jesus is now a son or daughter of the living God. Our identity has been radically changed by God's grace. We've been transformed and placed into the family of God, given this brand new identity. You are a child of God. And because of this truth, I can experience a picture of the ideal in God's family. God invites us into his family. 
He makes it possible for me to be called a son. It makes it possible for all of us to be called sons and daughters of God. 1 John 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us? That we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And if you didn't get it the first time or the second time, dear friends, now we are children of God. You see, in God we have a father who loves us, who's lavished his love on us. We have, a, we have a father who made it possible for us to be his kids. He loves us. He sacrifices for us. He cares for us. He listens to us. He always knows best. He's always accessible. He's involved in our lives. He's always present. He's planned a future not just for us, but with us. Hebrews 2 continues, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, not crowned with glory and honor, Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. You see, in Jesus, we have an older brother who's leveraged his life for us in order to save us. We have an older brother who's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He sticks up for us. The Bible tells us that God chose us and and adopted us into his family, invited us into his family. And today, we, we think about adoption. It can be intense. It can be an expensive process. I think of my friend uh, Adam, who who was here last week. They just adopted a a baby boy from Mongolia. And they had to travel a long way to to go pick up this baby boy. And once they got there, there there was paperwork and hoops to jump through and, and things to bring baby Finn back home with them. But imagine. Imagine if they'd sent their firstborn son to Mongolia to adopt his brother. And imagine that Adam and his wife knew that the only way they were going to adopt this little boy was if they sacrificed their own son in a public execution. It's like, what? That's unthinkable. Yet that's precisely what God the Father did in sending the Son, Jesus, into the world and onto the cross so that we might receive adoption as his sons and daughters. God did this for you. God did this so we could be a part of his ideal family, to invite us into his family. In the church, we have a whole family of brothers and sisters, a family that has all found their place around the table, the same table, the same way, grace. You see, at the cross, God redeemed what was ruined so that I could become a part of his family. And because of that, I can experience a picture of the ideal in God's family, but also I can heal what is real. Here's what I mean. Some of you, 
have some very real and very deep hurts because of what's real in your family. Some of you are still walking through the grudges and the family feuds and conflicts because of what's real in your family. The only thing that I know that has the power to heal what's real in our lives is the good news of Jesus, the gospel. It's the only power to heal the hurt, to heal the dysfunction, the disappointment and confusion that you've experienced in your real family. And not only is it what you need to heal what's hurting within you, it's the only answer to heal what's real in your family, but how? You see, right in the midst of, of all this crud and all of this mess, God speaks because our God functions in dysfunction. And God can speak into and, and lead through the messes. He can speak through you. He can speak through you as you shine the light on Jesus in your own family. And as part of God's family, you bring something to your real family that has the power to heal. I mean, let's realize that, that God is never intimidated by family flaws and family failures because he matches all of that with his faithfulness. God can redeem the mess. The question is, will you choose to see that? Will that be the lens you live your life from? Will you live from dysfunction? Or will you live with a God who can function in the midst of it? You see, God will forgive you as you are, and he will make you a new person. He will transform you and change you. He will make you his son or daughter and then bring you with him into his kingdom forever. But here's the thing. I can only pursue God's ideal design by denying, <clears throat> by denying what is real, by not denying what is real. I can't keep pretending that everything's all right. I, keep, I can't keep protecting that I have protecting the, the idea that I have the perfect family because I will never heal until I'm real. Real with myself. Real with my family. Real with my spouse. Real with my relationships. Real with my past. Real with my present. But in all of this, remember that God redeems our messes. God delights in working his saving power through people who have nothing left, who have nothing to give. Whatever the condition of your family, turn to the one who rooted the ideal design and creation, redeemed it at the cross, and invites you into his family forever. See, for some of you, you've, you've given up. You've given up on this ideal of God's design. It's, it's too hard. It's, it's too countercultural. It's too weird. People will think I'm, I'm weird and it's too inconvenient. But God's ideal hasn't changed. It doesn't matter what you think. God's ideal hasn't changed. For others of you, you've had so much pain and hurt because of your real family experience. There's, there's dysfunction and pain. 
The gospel is the only remedy that has a chance to heal the hurt in you, to heal the hurt around you. God functions in our dysfunction and can bring healing if we let him. The good news is for all of us, God invites us to experience his family. To be in his family, to live as his son, as his children, as his daughter and shine the light bright on Jesus. He gives us hope. He gives us strength. He gives us this new life. May all of us live and grow and embrace his gracious love in the context of his forever family. Let's pray together.